I think the exposure of some of these problems has led a lot of people to start to ask, like, what am I in it for? Like, why am I here? What's the, what's the ministry for? This is Equip and Engage, a podcast by Subsplash, exploring how ministry, technology, and innovation come together to equip churches around the world to engage their communities. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Carolyn Farney, an account executive here at Subsplash. And once again, I am sitting virtually next to our senior VP of Marketing and Leadership Development, Nick Bogardis. Nick, how are you feeling about part two of our conversation today with Mike Cosper? I'm feeling great. I mean, I loved part one. I loved the whole conversation with Mike, so I'm excited for people to hear part two. And similar to what I said in part one, there is a, a great opportunity for those of you who are listening here to, to learn from the mistakes of others, right? You can save yourself some of that dumb tax and not have to pay it by learning from the mistakes of um, others. And so there's, a, there's the opportunity to apply um, with wisdom and responsibility and compassion, um, the things that you learn from uh, the stories that Mike shares. And so pay attention to that um, and how you can apply them in your own context. I think I'm also excited to, to talk about with Mike um, the good that the church is doing in the world. You know, and coming out of stories like this, it's very, you know, fail stories are very popular right now. Uh, we love to seek out um, especially high profile um, stories of failure um, and really miss the ordinary good that the church does every single day. Local churches in their communities yeah. all around the world that is unseen, unnoticed, untelevised, but yet it's happening all the time. And so it's good to recognize the church is doing good daily, everywhere. And that in moments where we're looking at the distortion of uh, the church, that it doesn't negate the good design of the church. And so that's what I think we wanna kind of reorient ourselves to is turning from, yes, we can learn from mistakes, but let's also then live out the good that God has called us to and that the church does well uh, around the world. Absolutely. That that is so great. So, well, let's go ahead and get started. Here is Mike Cosper. One of the things that was part of my journey um, coming out of that that community was I, I sat with counselors and spiritual directors and other pastors and stuff, and I'd sort of share my story and then share where I was at, kind of the restlessness I was feeling. And I mean, every time the comment was the same, like, you just, you need to learn to grieve. You need to learn to grieve. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were several times where I would just sort of yeah. exasperatedly yell, like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what you're, <laughs> you're telling me to grieve. I literally don't know what that means. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and one of the horrible things and, and weird yeah. graces in all of this was a little over a year ago, my, my dad passed away. Uh, and it was very sudden. It was, it was, you know, we, he was sick. We didn't know what was going on. It took about three weeks for us to find out he had cancer. And he passed a week after um, he got the cancer diagnosis. And that loss, th there were some funny ups and downs that happened in the weeks after that, um, where suddenly I knew what grief meant, right? Mm -hmm. There was this very clear sense of like that door is closed, that relationship, you know, I'll see him again. Um, yeah. But the connection, the, the history, all of that, it's something to love and to, to cherish, but it's also something to, like the grief is sitting with the reality that like the, that time has passed. 
and feeling the sadness that comes with it, right? Yeah. And in a weird way, I feel like that was the last gift my dad gave me was mm. this ability to understand, okay, this is this is grief. And mm-hmm. I was able to enter aspects of my story with that that were really transformative for me. Man, that's really powerful. I'm a, like in my mind, some of the dots connecting, obviously talking about death and resurrection, that mm-hmm. there is this aspect of our faith that we are promised resurrection on the other side of death but there is still that process. And even in that, there's a grieving that happens. And, you know, I too have been working with a counselor on some different things. And one of the aspects that she's been even teaching me about grief is, you know, there's different types of grief. There's concrete grief, like you losing your dad. And there's existential grief where Hmm. loss of mobility. And then on the other end of the spectrum is this abstract grief (laughs) that is the hardest to articulate and the hardest for others to understand. And so, but it doesn't, there still is that same cycle of grief Mm -hmm. that you work through. And at some sense, it's not linear how you work through it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, I think that uh, also at least was firing for me and kind of connecting some aspects, you know, in in these really hard situations that happened to us for, you know, with, with churches maybe we're a part of or, or experiencing through other people that really yeah. does require that grief mindset that you're walking through mm-hmm. too. You know, yeah, I think, I think there's a sense too, real quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a, there's a sense with grief that it, it does take a kind of, um, a kind of solitude, a willingness to be alone with yourself a willingness to let those things arrive. Um, and it's so easy. I mean, I'm sure we could have like a two hour conversation about the attention economy, you know, especially with the work yeah. you all do. Right. Um, but no one would listen to it though. Cause they wouldn't pay attention, Mike. That's right. They'd be, they'd be on Twitter <laughs> by, by now. But I think that, um, like solitude has to be just such a significant part of the Christian life. Yeah. Cause you have to get alone, not to be alone, and not just to be alone with God. I mean, that's a obviously a huge mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. But you also have to get alone with yourself. And it's only in solitude that you can really hear yourself. You can really under like mm-hmm. you can allow yourself to speak, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's even doing that thoroughly is a long journey. Dave, the poet David White has this line that's haunted me for a while. He says he says, you know, that he essentially he says that he longs for this day when he uh, hears a knock at the door. And he opens it, and he's greeted by himself. Like he, it's, it's himself coming home. Um, and I think I think we need that. And I think that's that's part of the grief journey is is sort of embracing yeah. that. Um, and I I would say too. I mean I think there's a lot of that at the root of, you know, why we're susceptible to powerful charismatic personalities, um, and to you know, institutions that feel like movements. You know. Um, because we, because we haven't been alone with ourselves and we don't have a sense of self. And if somebody offers that to us, man, we are excited to sign up for the journey. Yeah. It was, it was Pascal that talked about like how our, our resistance to actually think of our own mortality or death is what causes us to distract ourselves. Like 
if we were actually, or like mm-hmm. Louis C.K. talked about that too, didn't he? Like what, when we find ourselves alone at the red light or the stoplight, we start scrolling for our right. phones because we, we want to avoid that we're utterly alone or something like that. Like right. That, right. that unwillingness to face not just mortality, but grief like you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you're talking about the formation piece, Mike, is really important. Um, because for those, you know, those who are listening to this conversation, they might hear grief and like, it doesn't connect with them. And they're like, well, I'm not, this, this doesn't have anything to do with me. There's going to be others who are listening to it. And like, yes, that's my experience as well. And even on this call, the three of us are right now, like actually connecting on walking through what it looks like to grieve. And so I hope for those of you on the call, this is helpful. But Mike, you and I talked about a couple of days ago, um, you know, Historically, when we were both at Harbor, we worked together on helping people consider how their worship forms them. We worked with worship leaders and worship pastors to think about that. And a couple days ago, you and I were talking about how um, the songs that we sing form us. Would you mind uh, sharing that here? Are you up for that? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, there there was a real intentionality. I mean, the, the English hymn is, is not that old of a thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. The church, it was a big part of the you know, uh, the movement of the Reformation gave us original hymns. Um, and for much of church history, particularly, you know, prior to, to those years and for much of the, even for much of the Reformation, the church sang psalms. And, um, you know, and then the English hymn comes along and then, um, you know, shortly after that revival comes, revivalism comes along. And so there's this incredible evolution that has taken place in the last what would that be? 250-ish years in, mm-hmm. in the life of the church, um, where the roots of the church's worship were, were in the Psalms and in the whole range of what the Psalms, you know, uh, walk through, sing through, the, the joys, the heartaches, the, um, you know, the, the reasons to celebrate, the anger, these expressions, these profound expressions of anger mm-hmm. that, um, you know, that we would be very you know, very, very tempted not to voice today when we gather. Um, And so there's been, you know, everything's kind of cyclical, but it does seem as though there have been these cycles of kind of degradation of that richness. You know, when Watts uh, started writing hymns, you know, he's kind of the father of the English hymn. His first project and many of his most famous hymns were actually translations of the Psalms, where he not only translated the words, but he translated the theology. So instead of David, we're singing about Jesus. Instead of, you know, those enemies, we're singing about Satan, sin, and death. And, you know, wanted to bring out the gospel in the Psalms. But over, you know, over time, we come to this place where, you know, at the particularly like around the turn of the 20th century, revivalism takes hold. And music really becomes like pragmatic, instrumental in the sense that, um, you know, music is meant to sort of stir things emotionally and set the table for a, a sort of crisis of conscience that's going to take in place in the sermon and lead to a decision, lead to some kind of action, moment of action. Um, so we've been debating about like, well, what do we do about this as Christians for more than 100 years? And there, there's two things that I think about all the time with regard to this. One is when, when I think about the contemporary worship service, um, and w- what I always challenge pastors with is, if somebody got diagnosed with terminal cancer on Thursday, mm-hmm. and they show up at your church on Sunday, do they have a song to sing that speaks to their world, right? Because mm-hmm. um, often they don't. Often it's this 
again, this over-realized eschatology, like everything's great, you know, like God has made us happy. We're so, we're so excited to sing. God is so excited that we're singing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's, that's doing a huge disservice to the church. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think about is that there was this movement of sort of hymn revival in the in the two thousands, the mid two thousands. Um, started with you know some some guys from Reform University Fellowship, but it was it was all over the place. You had major worship leaders doing albums of hymns and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of gone now. And I asked uh, Harold Best about this. Harold's a uh, he was a longtime dean of the Conservatory of Music at Wheaton and. Just a really amazing person. He's he's ninety now, um, and I asked him about this a, a little while back, and his comment on it was he he goes well I can tell you exactly why it happened. He said it was nine eleven. So we had our first national tragedy in you know massive national tragedy in in fifty years you know since Vietnam, um, and people looked at you know what was coming Sunday and they said oh my gosh we don't have any songs to sing somebody find a hymnal you know. And I think that was transformative for a decade or so, and uh, we've we've kind of drifted away from that once again. Mm-hmm. And and because of that, like, does the church, if if the songs, if the psalms of the Bible teach the church to pray, the songs of the church are doing that now. Have we taught people to pray these prayers of grief and sorrow and sadness? And so yeah. that's that's a long answer to a question. Yeah. Obviously, something I've talked about a lot, but um, I I think it's just such a such a significant part of what what I desire for the church is a church that yeah. knows how to pray. Yeah. And I think we do we equip them with song. You know, to your to your uh your question about the cancer diagnosis, like something that has always stuck with me, Mike, was uh we have a mutual friend who's a singer songwriter and in one of our cohorts, she had mentioned that um when she was going through a divorce, she landed in a uh uh an Anglican church and she found the liturgy so comforting and helpful because she said like at the worst lowest point of my life um i was given words that gave voice to what i didn't know how to say and mm-hmm. they're like that's beautiful right and when you think about kind of what you're talking about of what uh, what are we emphasizing and what's shaping us um what are the per- what, what percentage of those things is all you know, upbeat positive everything's all right gonna be okay and what percentage of it is maybe more addressing heavier, weightier matters. If you like look at the reality that largely it's the former, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a family, right? Like you, you, you end up replicating what is normal in your family because it's just normal to you. It becomes the language that you speak because it's what you were raised on. And like, if, if that's what we have formed people on, of course they're going to have a hard time grieving. <laughs> of course they're going to have a hard time, like actually naming things they're struggling with or, uh, or that they've lost or um, even they hope for in their like quietest moments that they wouldn't tell anyone else about like all that stuff. Like if we, if we, that's how we've shaped them, it's malformed, you know, like, and it's, there's there, again, there's an invitation for church leaders here to be like, how are we forming them? And like, mm-hmm. are we, are we giving people um, life, death, resurrection <laughs> as a mm-hmm. total, um, as a total package? Cause that's human experience. And mm-hmm. uh, I just think that's, your work on that is super helpful, Mike. Mm-hmm. Um, are you cool if we, we turn the corner a little bit? Because I want to look into, okay, well, yes, there are leadership crises. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, there are lessons we should learn. And there are, we should have put this caveat at the very beginning, way more lessons that we can cover in, you know, 60 minutes <laughs> together. And that people should go uh, read and listen and, and consider. 
Um, but I'm curious, I mean, you, you heard a lot of hard stories, but I'm guessing that in those stories, there was also moments of light and, mm -hmm. and God's grace and goodness. You already mentioned that in your own story, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you, when you look around, what do you see the church, what, what good do you see in the church right mm -hmm. now? And what, what good do you see ahead for it? That's a great question. I, I think there's a growing, I hope it's growing, curiosity around people like Eugene Peterson. I mean, it's a name you just hear constantly right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a growing curiosity around the sort of the kind of pastoral life, but also just the kind, the kind of spiritual life, the kind of Christian life that he lived. Um, you know, I, I think the... I think the exposure of some of these problems has led a lot of people to start to ask, like, what am I in it for? Like, why am I here? What's the, what's the ministry for? Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, Yuval Levine, this, this scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, talks about how we live in an age where, you know, institutions used to form people into the kind of people who did their jobs well, whether that was in academia or in Congress or in some place like the church. Mm -hmm. And the, the problem of our moment is that they've become weak and people come in and go like they they use the institution to become famous rather than to actually get good at their work. Mm. I think there's a lot of rethinking of that right now, like a lot of self-awareness. And so I think churches are trying to figure out, you know, how do we do spiritual formation for ourselves, for our leaders, um, for for our churches? And um, and, you know. I think it's a really complex challenge because all of the things that it seems to me anyway, all of the things that the scriptures tell us about what it mean, means to be remade in the image of, of God, in the image of Jesus, um, are these slow processes, right? Like it takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. um, it takes suffering. Like we're, we're told over and over again, like we're going to suffer. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, don't like and, that. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, the, the passage I'm obsessed with in the scriptures these days is the transfiguration because it's this beautiful moment. Here's Peter who longs to see, um, uh, longs to see Israel restored. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's with Jesus and, you know, Moses and Elijah, Jesus is transfigured. Moses and Elijah show up, both of them heroes because of the fact that they, created this nation, restored this nation, and all of this. Mm -hmm. And that's his hope. That's, that's what he hopes Jesus is going is, is gonna to do for him. And um, almost, so, so his response is to say, can, can we build tents? You know, and the King James gets the translation right. It's, can we build tabernacles? He knows this is a holy moment, right? And um, almost as soon as he says it, it's over. And they're walking back down the mountain. And two things happen. One, Jesus predicts his death for the second time. And two, they encounter a boy possessed by a demon who's been throwing himself into a fire his whole life. And so it's like these immediate encounters with mm -hmm. suffering on the other side of glory, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think all these things that we've been talking about, like we're feeling them. Like you can't help but feel them on the other side of two years of pandemic that's you know taken the lives of a million people. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, my hope is that you know, in our churches, we're, we're, we're valuing those aspects of this moment mm -hmm. and, um, and pressing in to see like, okay, what can the Lord do for us? Like, what is this, how would this change our preaching if we took death seriously, if we took formation seriously? 
how do we value community? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say too, like in the reporting on Mars Hill, the thing that was the most powerful to me mm-hmm. um, was to just see the love and affection that the members of the church still have for each other to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, even when there's some like, man, I wish you hadn't done that, or where were you for me? Even when there's just a little bit of that, uh, or a lot of it, like there's still this depth of affection that, and those relationships are so powerful. Yeah. Um, and I think Christ wants to meet us in, in the heart of those and in, in that kind of community. Yeah, the that beautiful component, which, um, you know, even through suffering, even through trial, even through all these things that me being the like number one conflict avoider, <laughs> I, that aspect of there is, you know, a, a loving father that we have brings us through that for, like you said, our formation, because there, he knows there's deeper wells of joy on the other side. And there's mm-hmm. something that is just, he holds the mystery there in terms of uh, how these things can paradoxically feel like they're happening and him still be good. Um, mm-hmm. through it and, and over all of it too. Yeah. I, can I tug on two strings, Carolyn, that Mike yes, left I, dangling yeah, out there that I have to, yes. um, you know, <laughs> Mike, I think, I think I want to, I want to, I want to highlight two things that you said, you know, a few minutes ago, you talked about how the cross, um, your, the cross is for, and speaks directly to, uh, guilt, shame and fear. Right. Um, and when I think about what the church does good in the world at its best, there's still a message that is timeless and necessary, existentially powerful, um, that when you, when you strip everything else away and you get down to that, that's the best thing in eternity, <laughs> like in, in, in existence. Mm-hmm. And like for church leaders to see that purpose, that message, at the heart of what they're doing. Like, I think you just, even when you mentioned that, I lit up a little bit. I was like, yes, like that's, <laughs> that's so good. And I, I think there's so much goodness for church leaders to embrace in that. I think also your, your mention of um, Eugene Peterson, you know, like he also brought to mind like a Zach Eswine or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Julie Camless, like that um, people who are writing and talking or uh, Hannah Anderson, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people that we know, like that are doing great work on that stuff that, that are talking about what does the ordinary faith look like? And I think there's, mm-hmm. there's some good work, uh, for the church to do in the future. And that is overlooked and ordinary that mm-hmm. by being an embodied presence, um, we can, we'll have some really powerful impact on our communities. It might not be big and showy and whatever else, but it, it's beautiful. You know, like, uh, mm-hmm. we were in church on Sunday and, the guy who was reading the scripture reading had to have been in his eighties. And mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's, he was so old. He was struggling to make it through the reading, you know, cause he was, he, he was trying to breathe as he was reading in fragments and he was reading mm-hmm. through John 16. And he got to the part of, um, uh, where Jesus says, take heart for I've overcome the world. And he, he broke from the fragments and he like, <laughs> he bellowed that like, a victory mm. cry. And it was like the most beautiful thing ever. Cause you're just like, look at this old man who I wouldn't know in any other circumstance who like is in front of hundreds of people proclaiming truth that he probably clings to at the end of life. Like you're just like, this mm. is amazing. And just that ordinary presence, like mm-hmm. there's so much goodness uh, in the church in that. 
Yeah. I think part of what I think about too is like, ask somebody who's been a believer for a long time, yeah. whose faith you respect, <laughs> what yeah. mattered to you? Like, what were the most important things? <clears throat> what were the most important things that shaped your faith? Yeah. And they might say like, you know, sometimes you'll hear like a sermon or two, or this preacher was really influential or a book or, you know, something like that. But, you know, nine times out of 10, it's going to be these people, this yeah. relationship, yeah. this person that showed up in the hospital when my, my kid was sick or I was struggling yeah. in some way. Um, it's almost always things that anybody can do <laughs> that make the big differences. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 cha- the, the difficulty is, the difficulty is that we see these the moments that happen where God does do something, you know, I'm not trying to preach a sermon on the transfiguration, but like we do see these moments of glory that are just awe inspiring and God gives us those like they're real. The, the difficulty is like we, we always have the temptation to say like, let's build tents, right? Let's do that every weekend when we get to the church <laughs> instead of like, let's do the normal work. Let's hear the word. And then yeah. let's be the community together as we try to figure out how does this shape who we are? Yeah. Um, and anybody can do that. And you can do that with bad preaching and bad music. And I love good music in the church. And I like good preaching, but you don't need it. And, and church history has proven it. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And really, as we land the plane, that, I mean, that feels <laughs> like it just encompasses the, um, you know, giving meaning to the ordinary faith and joy is found in these, you know, small ordinary moments and big impacts that we have for eternity can happen in these small ordinary moments. Um, hmm. So as we just wrap it up, Mike, what are you working on next? How can our listeners uh, follow you or follow yeah, so along? <laughs> I'm, I'm still sort of on Twitter. Like I'm on way less. I used to be a total Twitter junkie. Um, I mostly these days follow uh, and, and pay attention to Colts, uh, Indianapolis Colts Twitter okay. and tune out most of the rest of it. But I'm there. Um and then, you know, if ChristianityToday.com um, slash podcasts, you'll, you can see what we're, what we're doing. We have a bunch of stuff in progress that will be launching starting in this summer. Um, and then I have a book um, manuscript that hopefully will be wrapped up here in the next few weeks um, that is looking at the mountains in the Gospels, uh, including the Mount of Transfiguration. So one of the, one of the obsessions here. But anyway, um, that's, uh, that's what's cooking on my That's amazing. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. Even in these weighty conversations, I love Mike's sense of optimism. He's still hopeful for the outlook of the church. Nick, what gets you excited about the future of the church? Um, Well, first, before I get to excitement, I think we have to recognize it is a super challenging moment for church leaders. It has been a really trying a uh, couple years, and it, it doesn't appear to be letting up, at least in the short-term future. And so we do need to recognize, man, it's just, it's been hard. And yet, um, I think we all share the conviction that God can use what man intends for evil for good. And that out of the challenges of the last couple years, that 
he can bring a lot of fruit. And so I'm excited to see what that that fruit is. I think that um, right now we're getting, you know, if we can find the opportunity, the key to any crisis is finding the opportunity. And so if you can find the opportunity, you can find some hope. And I think right now what I'm seeing is there's an opportunity for clarity. I think we are seeing really much uh, with more clarity than ever, like who is in our church and who, who really wants to be there, who loves the Lord, and, and, and how can we steward and shepherd uh, the people in our local churches? There, there's really some, some clarity there. I think there's also, um, I'm, I'm also excited for um, the, the relational em, embodied um, part of the church. Um, I have a, an old mentor of mine who said the evangelistic churches, the next generation are gonna be the relational ones. Mm-hmm. And while we're looking at a story of a lot of relational um, trauma, there is also a lot of hope uh, for the church to be a place that can learn from mistakes and uh, in a healthy, strong, compelling way, embody the gospel together as a community of believers in a world that is uh, more uh, increasingly uh, relating in a way that is less healthy, more por- yeah. more polarized, more anxious, more depressed. Um, if the church can can be a place that can address those things in a, in a gospel-centered way, I think that'll be a really compelling witness to the world. So I see, I see two opportunities there that are really exciting to me. Yeah, I love, I love how you drew those out. So thank you, Nick. Thank you, Mike. And thanks to everyone listening today. As always, we have more conversations coming up just like this one. Conversations to help pastors like you navigate through the unique challenges of doing ministry in a complex and digital age. So make sure you don't miss out on future episodes by subscribing to Equip and Engage wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time.